Our passage this morning is going to be in Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. And while you're turning your Bibles there, I'd like to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Columbia Christian, this morning I charge you to do just as Paul was inclining the Corinthian church to do. Consider your calling. Think of how you were before you knew Christ. Think about who you'd be if you'd never known Christ and how far he's taken each and every one of us. Like them, many of us were not wise, powerful, or of noble birth. Take heart in knowing that it is God's way to choose such people, to use such people. We must not make the mistake this morning, like I believe some of the men in our passage today made, in thinking that we were chosen because we are so great. We were chosen this morning because God is so great. In an old hymn, we must have this attitude, Oh, to be nothing, nothing, painful the humbling may be, yet low in the dust I'd lay me, that the world might my Savior see. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the meditations of my heart the words of my mouth are honoring to you, and Lord, that they bring you glory. Lord, you are great. You are the definition of it. All greatness on earth can only be great in comparison to you. And nothing on earth comes close. Lord, you are the maker of the universe, creator of all things. You are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And Lord, you are deserving of our worship and of our praise. Lord, I pray that this is honoring to you, Lord, that you are, your name is made great by this message. And Lord, I pray that these words I speak are true. Lord, I pray that anything that I say, anything that I stumble over or fail to say, Lord, I pray that that is just marked out of each of our minds. But, Lord, that everyone here today is filled with your Holy Spirit and only focuses on the things that are true of you, the things that are beneficial and glorifying. But, Lord, we love you, and we thank you that we get to gather here so freely this morning to worship you in this way. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage, Mark 9, 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. 
And when they came to Capernaum, and they were in the house, and he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now traveling through Galilee, Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them a secret. You know, something that he is not yet ready just for anyone to know. He tells them the Son of Man, for the second time, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This was Jesus' mission. It is why he came to earth. As they were passing through Galilee and stopping at Capernaum, Jesus only had one destination in his mind, which was Jerusalem, where he would be going to be tortured and killed, and then three days rise again. This, I believe, is why Jesus has begun telling his disciples these things. Because they're on the way there. Why he's telling them, I'm going to die. This is where we're going. This is what's going to happen. He told them this once before in Mark 8. John, John preached on it using the same kind of language. He told them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, Mark said. And he'd tell his death again in Mark 10, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. These words from Jesus really should amaze us. Have you ever in your life heard a man speak this way? To speak of the future as if they were things that have already come to pass. Of course you've not heard anyone talk like that. And if you have, you'd probably think they're a little crazy. You know, if I was standing outside the Walmart um, and I was saying, Nicholas, the son of David, my dad's name, and will be killed by the hands of men, but in three days, I'm going to come back to life. Everyone who heard that would probably think, this man is insane. And you should think that. And actually, you should think that Jesus is insane. You should think that Jesus is crazy if he had only said those words. You should. But Jesus did not only say them. These things actually happened just as he said. Now, if Jesus had only said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, that would be pretty believable. And you couldn't really get on to any of the disciples for not understanding or trying to convince him otherwise. But he also said, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. 
Now, my friends, if those words are true, after three days he will rise, everything changes. If those words are true, then we must consider everything Jesus has ever said to be wholly true. We must consider everything he has said about our relationship to God to be wholly true if those words are true. Now, because they're true, understanding Jesus' mission, understanding these words, is essential to our walk as Christians. What Jesus accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection is the object of our faith. It is the source of all of our hope and peace and joy. Therefore, likewise, a failure to understand his work has direct consequences on how we are as disciples, if we are at all. Likewise, if we don't understand these things, how we make disciples will be severely hampered. Now, unfortunately, in all three times in Mark, when Jesus explicitly says clearly that I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to rise, the disciples fail to understand. The first time was in Mark 8. Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, saying something along the lines of, no, Jesus, you can't die. There has to be another way. Here you have a refusal to accept Jesus' mission on Peter's part, thus not understanding its importance. Then in chapter 10, right after Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die, James and John want to turn. And they come up to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Don't we all want that? And I just imagine Jesus at that moment, Teacher, we want you to do anything we ask you to do, turning to James and John, What do you want? They say, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. In your glory. This is ridiculous in itself that they would ask this, but it's like they did not even hear what Jesus just said. This is coming right off Jesus saying, I'm going to die. Three days I'm going to rise. And their response to this is, Make us great like you. But in our passage, it says it most clearly. Verse 32 says it plainly They did not understand the saying and were afraid. To ask him. So let's get into that. Uh, why didn't they understand? What didn't they understand? And why were they afraid to ask? Well, in a first read, we might conclude that the disciples just don't understand what he's saying. Like they don't understand the third person speech. Who's the son of man? What does he mean by rising? But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what they're not understanding. And I feel like I know that because in chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying something very similar. He says, no, this can't happen. So at least Peter has some comprehension of what Jesus is trying to tell them. I'm going to die. So they understand at least that. It's more likely that the disciples had this preconceived idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They were still thinking that Jesus was supposed to overthrow the Romans and liberate them. So then what didn't they understand? Jesus was determined to do something much greater. 
to be something much greater than what they realized. He would not be one man. The long line of kings, prophets, and judges who would restore Israel to repentance just for them to fall back into sin a generation later. He was going to be more than that. Now, Jesus, his plan was to restore a people to himself from many generations, from many races and tribes, and to liberate them once and for all from the bondage of sin and death. His his goal, his aim was much higher, higher than they could see at the time. Jesus also was setting an example for his disciples. One, again, they could not yet see. One of true greatness, true humility and love. When Jesus said these things, these three times, they were meant to contemplate the implications of such a statement. And that's something we're going to do today. But these people were so focused on what was right in front of them within the next couple of weeks that they failed to understand that Jesus was trying to get them to follow in his example. But why were they afraid? Why be afraid to ask a question? Well, it's possible they didn't want to get rebuked like Peter did. Last time Peter spoke up, he got called the devil. So he might, they might not want to go that route. Maybe that's it. Or maybe they understood enough of what Jesus was saying that they didn't want to know more. By this point, undoubtedly, they would have all grown very close to this man. He was their teacher, their friend. They've been through a lot together, so there's the personal connection. But there's also the reliance on him as their leader. What would happen if he died? What would they do? Where would they go? Would the same happen to them? Do we really want to know? Friends, be careful that you are so weary to accept what Jesus' life means for you um, that you never take a step forward in your walk. Be careful that you get so focused on your job, on your house, the chores, that you miss out where Jesus is trying to take you and what he's trying to teach you. Be careful that we follow in these disciples' footsteps, that we are so involved in what we have going on now that we completely miss where Jesus is trying to take us. Well, let's keep going to verse 33. After they had passed through Galilee, they arrived at a house they were staying at in Capernaum. Now, while they were there, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Now, I think they certainly had lots to talk about. They had lots to think about. Um, Peter, James, and John, for example, had a lot. They could have just been uh, processing the transfiguration, which happened not too long ago. How he glorified himself in front of them with Moses and Elijah to his left and right. They could have been talking about one of the many miracles that Jesus had performed. Um, Surely, they would have been talking about the fact that Jesus just told them he was going to die and then rise three days later. There are a lot of things that are acceptable for these disciples to be talking about. But Jesus asked the question, 
because he knew what they were talking about. Rather, what they were arguing about. On the way, verse 34, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I truly do, honestly, find this shocking. How could this be where their minds go? Take Peter, James, and John again. They've witnessed many things that the rest of the disciples haven't, from resurrections to the transfiguration. Surely, these men's takeaway wasn't, we're greater than the other disciples. I'd think that would be a humbling experience. Perhaps they were discussing Jesus' death, but instead they were discussing a contingency plan for when he dies. It's like, well, he really is going to die, and we need someone to carry on this mission, so we need to elect a new leader. One of us has to do it, so who's the greatest? Maybe that's where it came from. You know, it's common in our workspaces that when someone above us, a higher position, leaves, they have big shoes to fill. So everyone else in the office or in a workspace begins to grandstand, begins to puff up their chest and say, I'm better than the rest of the people to take that position to fill those shoes. Surely that's not what the disciples are doing right here. I hate, I would, I would want to be them if it was. But when they were asked, they chose to stay silent. And that was probably the best decision for them. There probably wasn't a really good thing for them to say. They stayed silent, like children, doing something they should not have, and they were caught. Um, we were arguing about who was the greatest. Church, do you want to become great? Well, there's no shortage of teachers and literature on this subject. You go to any bookstore, you can find a book teaching you how you can live your best life or your greatest life. There are many churches or places that call themselves churches who can tell you all about how you can be great. Throughout history, many kings have given themselves this title, the great, because of how many lands they have conquered and how many people they've put in subject to them. But these same men could go by other titles, the terrible, the violent, and they were known. They would call themselves the great, but known by something completely different. Yes, greatness has often been throughout history and even today defined by being more doing more, having more power, more wealth, and prestige. At the heart of every man and of every woman is a desire to become great. Again, to do more, be more, um, have more. Unfortunately, there are many preachers who would feed right into that desire. They would promise you that if you accept Christ into your heart today, they will make you prosperous. He will give you the wealth you desire, the authority, the uh, whatever you want. God will give it to you. And in truth, if you do accept Jesus, if he is your Lord, he will make you great. And in some ways, he will prosper you. But maybe just not in the way that you're expecting. In truth, this is the case. But with so many things, Jesus takes the way that many of us think and tells us, in my kingdom, it is the opposite. 
It's natural for us to hate our, our enemies, for example. And yet Jesus tells us, love your enemies, pray for them, forgive them. He tells his disciples, whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever would lose it will save it. Or Jesus says to his disciples in verse 35, if anyone would be first, if anyone would be the greatest, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. He flips things completely on their head. Now for a moment, let's consider the greatness of God. What a subject. The greatness of God. All of the Bible proclaims it, and all of creation proclaims it. Let's read uh, 1 Chronicles 29.11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion. O Lord, you exalt yourself as head over all. The greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty, it's all yours. You are the creator. Or consider the power of God, his might in Nahum 1. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. In the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand against such a God? Creator and ruler of all. He brushes whirlwinds aside like they are dust. The world heaves before him and bends to his will. How great is his power and majesty. The greatest rulers the earth have ever known hold no candle to him. Yet, consider the humility of Jesus the perfect image of God. Consider the kind of man that he was. Isaiah prophesied of him, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In all of God's majesty and his power, you know, mountains quake and hills melt. He is so gentle that he would not even break a bruised reed. He moves so carefully that he would not quench a faintly burning wick. Church, is your light shining very dim today? He would not move so suddenly that it is quenched. Is your faith just hanging on like a bruised reed? He will not break it. He will not push you over the edge. In all of his might and all of his power, he has perfect control over it to where he can be more gentle than anything that we could imagine. It is my heart's desire for each of you this morning that you would contemplate on this. The greatness of God, but also his gentleness and his tender, loving care for our souls. So powerful and mighty, but gentle and lowly. So let's return back to that passage in verse 35. In response to their arguing, Jesus could have said to them, It's me, dummies. I am the greatest. It's not you. 
I'm the greatest. And that'd be true. But that would do nothing to cure the ailment of their hearts. If Jesus said, well, I'm the greatest, guys, they would just say, well, who's the second greatest? Well, if it's not, if it's not me, am I the third greatest? And they would just keep going down the line because all they're obsessed with is, how great am I? What Jesus was trying to teach them was, none of you are great. None of you are great. He says, if you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be great, you must become the least. What Jesus is trying to teach them is a lesson that they were meant to understand when Jesus foretold his death and resurrection. If you want to become great, lay down your life as I will. Jesus is the greatest of all, and yet he made himself the lowest of all and the servant of all. If I were in Peter's shoes, James, John's shoes, and I witnessed the transfiguration that John preached about a couple weeks ago, I don't know how I would respond to it. I don't know if I would respond better than them, but I think I'd be speechless. If I were, say, in Peter's shoes, I think I would have already had a pretty good idea that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He casts out a legion of demons with the word, Demons run to him and beg for mercy. By his words, oceans still. By his word, wounds heal. People, the blind see, the mute can speak, the deaf hear. Um, he's done all of these things. He's even resurrected people from the dead. What I would not have understood is how could Jesus die? How could he die? That's what I wouldn't have understood. Could this man not save himself from any trouble he was in? Whenever the Pharisees and the scribes and everyone else started mocking him, prove who you say you are, could he not have just transfigured himself? Could he not have glorified himself in their midst? Had Moses and Elijah just stand before him? It's like, here I am. Could he at any moment when he was being beat and tortured not just have put an end to it all, showed his true nature? Could he not at any moment when he was nailed on the cross simply get down? He could have. And so I think the only explanation of this is, is that if he's going to die, he's going to allow it to happen. And indeed he did. Every second he bled and was mocked was a choice for him. It was a choice. Every moment he hung on the cross, he did it willingly. He could have put an end to it any second. And why? It was for our sake. And I believe that's what they did not understand. Philippians 2, 6-8, very popular verse. Um, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, do you want to be great? Well, this is what greatness looks like. 
It looks like willing, servant-like obedience, even to the point of death. It is, despite how great you might think you are, and you might actually be by worldly standards, it is to truly consider yourself to be the least of all and a servant of all. So lastly, in 37, after Jesus said these things to the disciples, in verse 36, he takes a child into his arms and puts him into his midst and says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is one example of what it looks like to be last of all and servant of all. Likewise, it's an example of what it means to be great. It looks like willingly and joyfully taking in and caring for those who are vulnerable and have nothing to offer you. No greater example is a child. A child cannot give you wealth for the care that you give them. As a dad, I can say that it is the opposite. They take your wealth a lot. But what it looks like to be great, if you're truly great, Jesus says, take care of people such as these, the lowly, the sick, the poor, the people who can't give anything back to you. Consider yourself lower than them. This is a sure sign of your heart today. Whether you truly understand Jesus and are his disciple, it is how you take care of these kinds of people. It can be easy for us as Christians, especially Christians who have grown up in church, to only surround ourselves with people that we think have it together. It's possible for us, though we're in church every Sunday, to grow a hard heart that is apathetic to the least of these. To be a church, as a whole even, that is not concerned for those who have little to give, who actually need much given to. Our willingness to truly love these people and provide for them depends on how we view ourselves and how we view Jesus. Is Jesus the greatest of all? Do you recognize that you yourself were not wise, you were not wealthy, you were not noble before he called you? Because if you do, you will help others. It will be easy for you to consider yourself the least of these Do you think you're too great to help those who are lowly? Is it beneath you? Jesus warned the Laodicean church saying, You say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So in conclusion, Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not just me, but him who sent me. Considering the greatness of God, you'd think that the kinds of people that he'd identify with here on earth are those who are great. You know, the king of kings might surround himself with kings. But our Lord, our ruler, identifies himself time and time again with those who have nothing. With children with the vulnerable, with the poor, and with the sick. He tells his disciples over and over, what you do for these, you do for me. And as a warning, 
What you don't do for these, you don't do for me. So who are Jesus' disciples? Are we his? They're full of fishermen, tax collectors, sinners. And in this church, we have many backgrounds. We've come from different places. Addicts to whatever it is. To alcohol, routine sin, anger, uh, malice, whatever it is that has been eating up in our hearts. We all come. We can all be identified by the sin that we were once consumed by. But now we are disciples. And we must remember our humility. We must lower ourselves to earth just like our Lord did and take care of the least of these. So my friends, become the least. Don't become the greatest. Become a servant of all. For that is who the king of the universe identifies himself with. Amen. Here in a moment, we'll have a time for people to come forward if they feel led to do so. But if you will, um, I believe that we're going to sing one final song. And after then, if you feel led to come forward and give your life to Christ or to ask any, for any kind of prayer request or any such thing, then we'll, we'll, we want to give you a time to do that. Okay?